G'day, folks. This is Peter D. Harper from the band Harper and Midwest Kind, and I'm here with Talking Blues with Marco, and I uh, hope you enjoy the podcast. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a long and deep and meaningful chat, so I hope, to, hope you stick around. You were just on tour. How was the tour? Oh, hot. Actually, it was great because uh, I got away from the cold of Michigan, and I know you know that's like. And uh, we, did, we did a nice little run down there for a couple of weeks. I, I don't go out as long as I used to. I just do a few weeks and then come back. I, I've got a lot of work to do here with, uh, I'm now writing for TV shows and and uh, been pretty busy doing that. So, you know, we do short tours and then I think I'm off now for a couple of months and then we get out on the road again. I've got to get back to Canada. Yes. I haven't been there before. I haven't been there since before the pandemic. And, uh, now we've got to get back in there again. Uh, the problem is, with that two-week break, a lot of places uh, they held off on people they booked earlier when I'd already done all those festivals in Canada. So then I had to wait for the – and that's fair enough. You know, the people that were booked in, they had to do their shows. So uh, hopefully I'll get back there. So when you said warm, are we talking like the southern states, like Florida? Is that where you were? Yeah, in weird old Florida, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, can you tell that it's weird when you're up on stage and playing? Oh, no, the people, you know, people are into blues music and that. They're pretty normal, but uh, I wouldn't want to uh, go to a rock show with them or anything because there's probably some crazy folks there. But, you know, blues people are really good. I mean, they, they tend to want to listen to what you're doing, which is what blues is. It's a listening uh, thing, I think. Right. You know, so, so you know, you get the people. We had some beautiful little shows there. Um, there's some nice places in Florida to play, you know, so uh, it kept us pretty busy and, uh, you know, now I'm taking a long break. I've got some catching up to do with these television programs I'm doing. So, you know, I better get in my get in my studio and do a bit of that. So um, I don't know about anything about the television program. I want to go back to the beginning, but before we do, tell me a little bit about the television program work you're working on. Well, yeah, it was... Uh, this chap was a DJ in uh, Massachusetts, and uh, before I did an interview with him for a show I was doing in West Yarmouth, he uh, called me early and said, look, I really love your music. Uh, would you be interested in writing for a children's television series? And I went, wow, that's a big offer. So he wanted um, a spaghetti western, and he wanted a, a kind of a New Orleans kind of thing, you know, jazz thing. So... um I sat there and wrote them and, and gave them to him and he loved them. And it's going ahead. It's going through Lionsgate, which is a good pro, uh, company to be with. Sure. And it's a show called Charlie Horse. It's about a horse that hurts his leg and uh, it's about friendship and understanding. It's a really interesting piece and he's got uh, Barbara Eden in it as well. She's really? going to be one of the Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she looks fabulous. I tell you, man, she still looks fabulous. Well, when you're a genie once, you know, you get your wish. Yeah, yeah. There's a secret there. <laughs> um, we all remember our school days watching I Dream of Genie, you know, get home early enough to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you done this kind of work before? I've been dabbling a little bit. I've got a couple of things with uh, an, an A&R company, but I've always been a songwriter all my life, I've always wanted to write, and not just, 
blues. I, I wanted to uh, do different types because I love all music. As long as it's done well, Marco, I don't care what it is. So, you know, it gives me an opportunity to do some arranging and writing and uh, do classical music as well. So it's, it's a great learning curve as well and a nice change from what I normally do. So knowing yeah. that it's a kid's show, does, does your approach to writing change? Well, yeah. I mean, you don't want to get too dark, you know. You've got to keep it uplifting. Right. I don't want to do my dark stuff. <laughs> I save that for my band. <laughs> so, so it's a more uplifting kind of uh, happy vibe, you know. Um, I did one. I'm, I'm actually in the show. I'm a platypus. Wow. And now, had you done anything like that before? I have. I used to be in a puppet show in Australia. <laughs> and I was a peg platypus back then. And uh, <laughs> my weird, my life is weird, I tell you, man. <laughs> so this is in between being in bands and stuff. I just did something else. And I, I like to try different things and see if I'm interested in it. You know, like, uh, it's nice to expand and not just do the one thing, you know, um, do lots of things and, and enjoy life. When you write these tunes, are you also singing for them or are these more instrumental soundtrack type music? Uh, no, I actually had a girl that sang the main song, which is um, Friends for Life. That's the name of the series. Charlie Horses the Horse, the famous horse. And uh, she sang the part and I actually wrote it in my key and then I had to change everything. But nowadays that's not hard to do at all. The, the uh, programs I have now are just ridiculously good. And uh, I did uh, sing one about pl the platypus. That's me. I'm singing it. <laughs> and I do this kind of Aussie voice with a lisp because, I, you know, he has a beak, so, you know, he can't speak properly. So <laughs> I threw that one in. Good. <laughs> and they loved it. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it coming out. I, I don't know when it's going to – these things take a long time. Mm -hmm. There's there's deals to do, and I didn't know this, Marco, but you have to raise the money yourself. The TV, the film company doesn't give you anything. They just you've got to get the money yourself. And I never knew that. I always thought they go, yeah, this is great. Let's give you some bucks, you know. But it's not like that at all. No, it's, so it's a crazy it a business. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I'm lucky I can do it all at my home. Technology nowadays, you know, uh, we can do. I do a lot of work for other people. Like somebody might. Uh, call me up and go, hey, Pete, could you do some didgeridoo or some harmonica on a song? And I go, yeah, sure. G send me one. I'll chuck it in my program, play it, send it back. And I've done a few of those. I did one for Paul Nelson. He did one for me. You know, he played some guitar for me. Wonderful guitar player. Great guitar player. Oh, good goodness. Yeah, so that, you know, that's kept me busy, Marco. I, I, I'm keeping my, uh, keep my music up, you know. Well, that's Can't good. Stop. Um, all right, so let's let's go back to the beginning. I know you were raised in England, but you yep. was there music in your life while you lived in England up to the age of age ten, or did music come to you after that when you moved to Australia? It kind of half did uh, because my grandfather was a great blues lover of blues music, and that was pretty popular in England anyway. And he was the one that got me listening to things and I tried the guitar and didn't like it. I just don't like playing it. So um, he said, well, why don't you try this little thing, the, you know, tin sandwich, the, the harmonica. Yeah. 
So I, I just don't know what it was, Marco, but I took to it like a duck to water. It was just easy for me. I didn't need lessons. I just played it and listened to all these wonderful harmonica players. And uh, then I thought, you know, I don't want to sound like them, so I'm going to try and be individual and try and do it my own way and then create your own sound, you know. So I started listening to other things like uh, guitar players and trying to mimic guitar playing on a harmonica. And uh, then I ended up later in life, I was doing a lot of commercials and then I started playing a lot of harmonica for movie themes and which I loved, you know, I mean, I remember back in the fifties, I don't remember it, but I was too young. I wasn't even around. They used to have a lot of harmonica yeah. in, in movies in England. Uh, Toot Thielman was one of the guys that did a lot of that. Brilliant. One of the best. Uh, chromatic harmonica. My goodness. You know, just beautiful. And now I remember the Goon Show, they used to have it. You know, it was a real common thing in England to have harmonica as a centerpiece of a piece of music. So I kind of like that, you know. And, and I fell in love with the harmonica and its simplicity, you know. And, and you, you mentioned toots and, and you said your grandfather was into the blues. Is that basically your starting off point is playing harmonica, blues harmonica or was there something else? Oh, no. No, when I went to school, I was in a brass band, different to here. The brass bands are like the English brass bands where they're, you sit down and you play together and, and uh, you play all sorts of different pieces of music. I was a euphonium player, which is actually in the key of E flat. So I had to transpose everything. <laughs> so, And I, I studied too. I learned reading and writing and uh, theory and uh that helped me in the future. You know, when you're young, you don't think it's, you know, oh, I don't want to do this, you know, this reading and thing. <laughs> but what I realise now is without that, I wouldn't have been able to arrange my own songs, you know, like uh, put them in the places that I want them to be, where the bass goes, where this goes, where that goes. And so I, I, I think that was a really big thing for me to be in that. I was in um, the Air Force brass band as a, as a civilian, they, they needed some euphonium players. They said, hey, will you do it for us? And I went, do I get a uniform? And I went, yeah. I went, cool. So I did that for a bit. And uh, I, I just loved it, mate. It was, I did that until I was around about the age of 18. And then I started getting into blues music with a band. And uh, I started just, you know, at home with a bunch of guys doing the garage thing, you know, sit around and, and eventually we started gigging and then I thought, this is fun, you know, like getting out there and playing, doing all these uh, songs. I mean, I even knew the Jay of Goals band back then in Australia. Uh, I, I had some good, you know, the old Jay Goals before they went right. pop. And uh, I had some good friends there that were great musicians and they um, had a great wealth of knowledge about different things that people may never have heard of before. So then I did that, you know, and then I formed my own band called Dog. Couldn't think of a name, so I went, oh, we'll just call it Dog. And that, that <laughs> went for quite a while. And then, I, I don't know, I, I started an original band and uh, couldn't get it to really work for me. Um, Can I ask you what kind of music? Was this blues at that point? Uh, yeah, it was, well, Jay Giles, the old stuff. Um, I, we did a lot of... Uh, Muddy Waters and, you know, the old school uh, kind of blues. There was a few English bands. Um, to, I can't think of their names right now, but there was a couple of English blues bands that we used to do their stuff. Obviously, I did some uh, John Mayle, 
and the blues breakers stuff and uh it was it was a uh, a very democratic band we all had a say we all decided what we were going to play one of the guys might go hey check this out and you know oh that's great yeah we'll do it but um i got tired of doing other people's music so i started writing my own and you know that was a tough thing to do because most bands were cover bands anyway and probably still are the ones that bring the people in mm -hmm. and I, I just made a big decision i said you know i'm just going to do original music i want to write my own stuff and and started doing that and then i quit music for a few years i had enough of it and uh i went to a blues jam i don't know if you know jeff atchison i don't great guitar player australian guitarist he came over for a few years and uh he he got me up to play with a bunch of guys and I was like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I got up and I went, I do want to do this again. You know, I missed it. And then uh, uh, the guys I was playing with decided they wanted me in their band. And then I, be I became a member of their band, which was called Blue Devil. <laughs> How bluesy can you get, you know? <laughs> so then we started playing a lot of stuff and I kept adding music in and we got a record deal and the guitarist, was jealous of me because I was writing and so he wanted to sack me and then the record company said oh well we're gonna sack you because we like him so I didn't want that to happen Marco it was just it was like I was in the middle of this going I don't want to do this you know like it's supposed to be friendly and then uh, so I ended up uh, taking over the band and then it was uh, Peter Harper and Blue Devil and then it was Harper and Blue Devil and then after a while, it just became Harper and we got rid of all the other stuff. <laughs> and, and then to make things worse, Ben Harper's management wanted me to stop using my name. Oh, and I said, you lovely. Do that. that's my birth name. I, you can't stop me. So then I went, you know, Google searching is tough with just Harper. So we decided to make it Harper and Midwest Kind. That way, if anybody looks for us, they put that in. They're not going to get all this other Harper stuff you know, everywhere. There's so many of them. And, uh, you know, that's that's a brief history. It's a long one. I mean, there's lots in there. I did do an acapella band for a while. What, and, like uh, a doo-wop kind of thing? No, no, it was uh, modern. I, I always loved the flying pickets. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They were really no. uh, all the nylons from uh, Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nylons were cool. What they did was they did modern music and they uh, sometimes would add a drum in there just to give it a bit of a vibe and I went, this is fantastic. So I started doing that for a little bit and we were doing uh, modern songs and just I was arranging them, working out the parts so it could be full. And and it was another thing to help me songwriting, I guess, you know, like being able to do some arranging and stuff. So it did really well. I'm very successful. And then I got sick of it and <laughs> wanted to get back into the real world, <laughs> of, you know, of, of rock and blues and tough stuff. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned the vocals. I mean, for whatever reason, when I do research on you, they talk about your harmonica playing and they talk about your didgeridoo playing. They don't talk about your singing. And I think you have a great voice. But it's it's one of those things that you don't really, it's not, they don't write about for some reason. But, but you know, uh, the audience does. They come up and say, I love your voice or, you know, and I'm not trying to get accolades. I'm, I mean, really. I think, you know, over the years I've realised I'm a songwriter first and I can just happen to sing and play harmonica. and do, But usually whatever I attack, I want to be good at it. I don't want to be average. So the singing, the singing was a long 
process of uh, study and and uh, exercising and and then um, for a while there, I was doing commercials. I, I think I've done about two thousand commercials wow. over my lifetime, and some of them were in other languages, which was weird. I did one for Red Bull, which was actually in Chinese, and I had to phonetically sing it uh, in. <laughs> Chinese. So I had this Chinese person sitting next to me and they would write down how to say it using English, you know, laba, you know, like stuff like that. <laughs> so I, I did it and they, they took it and it, it played in China. So, you know, I ended up being the Red Bull guy for a little bit. It was a lot of fun doing it, you know, and I, the one thing that happened, Marco, is I got uh, good lessons on, uh, engineering because uh, what I do is I do the the commercial and then I'd hang back with the guy the engineer and just say hey do you mind if I just watch I want to learn how to do sound you know I was just curious and that helped me a lot and uh, my dear friend in Australia who I did many jingles with we used to go sailing together twice a week it was we had a lot of fun together unfortunately he's passed away recently and you know, he was my good buddy, and and he taught me a lot about engineering and and arranging for television, arranging for movies. You know, all really interesting stuff. So between that and playing in my band, I was kept pretty busy and making good money. I guess that's how I could get over here to the United States. So saving up pennies. Before we get to you coming to the states, tell me about the songwriting. At an obviously young age, you decided that you wanted to write your own songs. How easy did that come to you? Not easy at all. That was terrible. It was um, a lot of frustration, a lot of screwed up bits of paper, a lot of sitting there thinking, trying to think of a story. Because, you know, I didn't want to do the standard love one or drink. Oh, I've been drinking, you know, like all that kind of stuff. I wanted to do different things. And it seems to me I lean towards political political things uh, subtly, though, Marco. I, I never really say it to people's face, but I think when you listen to the lyrics, you can kind of pick up where I'm coming from without me. I don't want to be a preacher. I just want to do the songs. But, you know, I always seem to write about the bad treatment of the Aboriginal people back in Australia. As you know, in Canada and the US was the same with the Native people. And so... That was important to me. And then uh, it was hard. I started off doing the usual girl, lost a girl kind of thing, you know, and I got tired of that pretty quickly and wanted to move on into different things. So I kept looking for ways to find, you know, it, I always said to someone, it's the way you look at things, you know, like a normal person will look at, say, let's take, for instance, somebody getting on a bus, you know. Now, a normal person, oh, look, there's somebody getting on the bus, isn't it? A songwriter will go, oh, look at those shoes. They're kind of dirty. I wonder what he's been doing. Has he got any money? You know, you start thinking of things and then suddenly a song comes out of it, you know, because you're, you're thinking all these different things all the time. Instead of uh, thinking straight down the line, you start to wander around a bit and try and picture a story. Like when you dream, you know, if you ever remember any. <laughs> I never do. <laughs> but, okay, so you are definitely known for your work singing about the plight of the Aboriginal people and the Aboriginal culture. Yeah, yeah. When did that stick or when did that become your thing and how did that become your thing? Well, it's funny. I uh, I was at a blues jam again, another blues jam, 
And this guy came up with a didgeridoo and he said, hey, man, can I sit in with you? And I went, with that? You know, <laughs> really? And he said, oh, come on. And I went, well, I've got this one song that sits on A, you know, it just stays there, which is no problem, uh, which was on my 2000 album, I think, yeah. And uh, he got up and played didgeridoo underneath and I went, wow, this is fantastic. I love this drone. It's so good. So then he joined the band for a while and I started writing songs about uh, the Aboriginal people because I love their culture. It's so pure. And I knew a lot of them because I grew up in Western Australia where there are still a lot of Aboriginal folks there. Uh, so they were friends of mine and I always cared about them because they were treated wrongly, of course. And so I started learning the didgeridoo myself and, and I was talking to my, the Tukabi, who was my uh, dear friend in Sydney. I was talking to him and I went, you know, I'd love to play this, but I, I feel like I'm insulting your people if I do it. And he goes, well, we'll give you permission to do it. And I got permission from the elders to play didgeridoo because I wanted to respect their, their thing, you know, and, uh, so, and then all of a sudden they're all helping me. They're going, oh, don't buy these didgeridoos. We'll take you somewhere where you should get them. And I got real eucalyptus didgeridoos and they, they were just beyond helpful, you know, just really. And then this is the worst part, Marco. I'd only been playing for a month and I hadn't played on stage yet. So for the first time I'm playing at this place in Byron Bay up in the north of New South Wales. And I'm, I'm doing this song, uh, I think it was Way Down Deep Inside. No, it was Big Brown Land. And I, was, I wasn't a great player at all. I couldn't play that well. You know, I was sneaking air in every now and again. And all these Aboriginal people came out dressed and, and wearing the paint on their bodies and decided they were going to be in front of me dancing while I'm playing. So how's, that was pressure. <laughs> and I went, man, I'm not that good. What are you doing? You know, like, they go, oh, you'll be right, mate. You'll be right. And I've never forgotten that one. And they've always been helpful to me. And I went back to Australia and uh, after being over in the States for a while and I, I'm working, walking around uh, in Sydney Harbour where they play. You know, they, they sit there and play their didgeridoos and that. And I was talking to this Aboriginal and I go, oh, do you know where Tookaby is? He's my mate. And he turns and he says, yeah, he's right behind you. I went, how do they do that? <laughs> standing right behind me and, and you know, we, we hung out for a bit and uh, talked about the old times and stuff and that was my didgeridoo experience. has been wonderful ever since. I mean, I was scared because when uh, Blind Pig were going to sign me, I was scared that they wouldn't like it, you know, this didgeridoo thing because they're a blues label, but they loved it and... Uh, some people don't, you know, the diehard blues people don't like it, but... Okay, so, can I, I mean, as long as I've known about your music, the didgeridoo has been part of it. So I presume that when Blind Pig approached you or somehow, when it, what, however that contract happened, they must have known about that instrument and your association to it. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I got this feeling they might say, look, we'll sign you, but can the didgeridoo? You know, that's what I thought they were going to do. But they didn't. They said, we love it, man. And, uh, you know, we're going to take you on for three uh, three uh, CDs. And they were wonderful people to work with, I've got to tell you. They really let me do what I want. They weren't, like, telling me, oh, you can't do it. One song they didn't like and I, I 
canned that one, but eventually I put it on my own when I became independent because sadly Blind Pig got bought out by Sony and uh, that ended that career, you know, like... Well, how did I that first I... begin? How did it... How did your contract... Well, I lost phone calls. My manager, Bobby, who's amazing, she just doesn't stop till she gets what, what she wants. Incredible uh, fortitude she has. You know, many people would give up, but she just kept calling him, contacting him, and eventually uh, they agreed to come and see us. We were playing in San Francisco, and uh, Ed came down. He's the other partner. Ed was the uh, one of the owners, and he came down, and there was no one at the gig. It was kind of dead, but he sat through it. Uh, I think uh, one of the guys from Journey came down because he – Got me to play with them one time, and it was a lot of fun. Journey. <laughs> There's a blues band. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I've worked, I, I did an interview with Neil Sean, and, you know, he has a background in the blues. I mean, he's played with... Oh, some, yeah. yeah. You don't get to play like that unless you've got that soulful feeling. For sure. Know? Yeah, he was a lot of fun, man. I, I, they asked me to come and play with them one time when I was at a gig. They all turned up at my gig that I was at. And my band was freaking out. I didn't know who they were, to be honest, because, you know, Australia wasn't big on Journey. It was more of an American thing. Right. And so we finished playing and they're coming up to us and going, oh, man, we love your harmonica. We'd love you to come and play with us. And I went, what, join the band? And, I was like, and so uh, I did. I went along and, and played with them. And I, I was up on stage with Neil and he was shredding and I was shredding. You know, I could play fast, so it was a lot of fun. And, uh, it, you know, we had a blast, you know, like it was just great fun. And uh, they've become friends. Ross Valerie was a dear friend for a long time. He's not in the band anymore. They had some political fallout or some stuff, you know. They seem to be always having some fallouts. Oh, those guys, man. It just never ends with them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so a couple of things that come to mind. When you were playing in San Francisco, you, you weren't living in the States at that point. No, no, no. I, I did. No, I was still doing the old. I had so many air points. We'd always fly business class. It was fantastic. Oh, that is you know, pretty now, good. So I, I do want to ask, yeah. as, as somebody growing up um, musically in Australia, um, having, you know, done various things from commercials to voiceovers to your blues thing, your acapella thing. How important was it for you to get out of Australia and come to North America? What did North America mean to you as an Australian musician? Ooh, I think it was just this, uh, the population. I think it's the same problem people have in Canada. Uh, we're we're about the same size as Canada. You know, we have big cities, of course. Look at Toronto is huge. Yeah. Melbourne's huge. But it's limited in the amount of uh, venues you can play at because we only have six states and a territory. That's it. And, you know, uh, that was it. And so it got to the point where we're going, I'm going to have to do either go to America or do a day job, which I actually am a bookbinder by trade. Really? There's a, there's a career that doesn't get any work anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did that. And, and you know, uh, once, once Blind Pig signed us, that was when we went, well, we have to go there now because they want us – to be pushing this album, you know, like the first one, I think it was Day by Day with the first CD I did with them. And uh, so we went on tour and and they backed us up. They did really, it did really well. In fact, I think every CD I've done, 
has at least got to number three on Billboard. So that's uh, wonderful to know that, you know, that, that I've been able to achieve that. And so I was a great relationship with them. They were fantastic. And I, I'm, I miss them now because they were great to work with. But that was why we moved here because the work was here, you know, the work plentiful. I mean, I can't tell you how many festivals I've done in Canada. I mean, it was just fantastic. And I, I actually believe that the Canadian festivals are the best. They are really well run. Uh, the, the people are awesome. Just easy to work with. They remind me, you guys remind me of Australians with funny accents. <laughs> we say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we've still got the queen on our coins. That's I don't right. know. You know we don't like her much, but she's on our coin. <laughs> um, well, she's not around anymore, so I guess old ugly Charlie's going to get his head on the him. <laughs> Um, was that a, was that an easy adjustment to make to come to the states, or was it difficult? No, it was easy because we'd been coming over for a few years, so we knew we knew the landline. You know, we knew how to run things here. Uh, so, because we used to come over for six months and just tour solidly, tour for six months, so we really did get a handle on it. And we were going everywhere, you know, one side to the other, and up down left right so so it wasn't too bad for us to uh make the decision and the i think the hardest thing was getting our furniture that took longer than it did for, for us i mean it took three or four months for it to get here so we were I, I liked it though marco i love the you know roughing it for a bit you know you always remember it having cardboard boxes for tables and stuff <laughs> Um, how about acceptance into the blues community? I mean, I presume that it was, I mean, you had established yourself and and had a name, but was there any difficulties in that? I think uh, the only thing that's happened is there are a lot of people who think I'm an unusual harmonica player and they don't accept it as a form of blues. That's not everybody, but there are some people out there who go, oh, yeah, he's just... He's like John Popper, and I go, no, I'm nothing like John Popper. He's a friend. Uh, apart from that, you know, like, and and so you get that. I've had a few of those things, but generally, people are accepting, and and we don't just do blues festivals. We do world music festivals. We cover it all, you know. Uh, I think what I'd say about my music is, it's blues based. I wouldn't say it's actually blues itself, but it's based on all the all the differences. And I, I always said this to someone, I said, you know, could you imagine what Freddie King would be writing now if he was still doing it? I mean, he did pack it up. That was an amazing song. Mm -hmm. You know, he would have moved the blues into a new century and, and it would have kept going, you know, like uh, you don't want to keep staying on the one, four, five all the time. It gets kind of old. So, you know, I was always experimenting and I guess I'm crossover, crossover blues artist. But I think the reason they keep me as a blues artist is because I play harmonica, and that's you know, that's uh, that's close to God. <laughs> blues. Um, <laughs> how, how do you do in Europe? Oh, wonderful! Yeah, I, I, especially Germany was really excellent. We actually went to China just before the pandemic, and uh, did a tour there, which was fantastic. I mean, the people were fantastic, but I would never go back there. <laughs> I was sick of turning around and seeing a 
uh, the uh, Red Army behind me everywhere we were. It's a very strange country, but the people are the same everywhere in the world. They all have the same problems, you know. Mm-hmm. It's um, Germany was wonderful. Belgium loved us. So, uh, Italy went crazy. Italy's weird because they don't. They're not strict on time there. <laughs> no. It, it was frustrating, but also I had to learn to calm down because we do a show. I was supposed to start at 10, but the owner would come out and say, oh, we eat. And then he'd be sitting down eating this massive meal. By the time I got on, it was 12 and uh, we did an hour. That was it. <laughs> but what great uh, food, though. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're spoiled with food. I mean, Australia's always had the same style of food. We have strict laws on, I think Canada does too, on a lot of things. They don't. It's not the same as America there. They got that strict rule about what goes into your food. Right. Australia has that as well. So, you know, real bread with no sugar in it and real cheese and bangers, which I love, miss. <laughs> uh, sausage rolls, pork, pork pies. <laughs> I presume, though, even though you've been here for quite a few years now, here being North American, um, you're still considered an Australian artist, are you not? Yeah, and Australia's very... Um, I went back to Australia and I, we had wonderful crowds everywhere. They, they'd accepted me for being an American now because I've been here for so long. And uh, the first time I went back from America, it was, you know, not many people coming out to our shows, but this time it was packed everywhere and it was wonderful. It was a great experience. Uh, I had a great time there. And uh, I couldn't recognise anything there, Marco. It was like Melbourne's three times the size of when I left, you know, in 2000. That's 20 years. Jeepers. Oh, sorry, 16 years now. And uh, in that time, it's just changed so much. I, I couldn't find my way around there at all, you know. <laughs> and I've lived there for ages. <laughs> it was weird. You know, you know, it's like, you know, if you, one guy said to me, said, if you buy a house and then you sell it, never go back there because that other person is going to do things to that house that you're going to hate. So we went to our old house and it was terrible what they'd done to it. I went, oh no. And I put up this fence myself and they painted it gray. And I went, the, the guy was right. Don't go back to your old house to look at it because you're going to be upset. <laughs> but do they treat you differently? Because you've, you're now, I don't know if they consider you an American artist, but you've been away from home for a long time. I don't, you know, I don't think so. Um, you know, they're like, they're like Canadians. They just want to have a good time. They don't, they're not very judgmental. You know, they just want to have a good time. Uh, they just treated me like an Australian because of the accent, I guess. You know, I haven't got that American drawl going on. Right. And so, yeah, that's never going to leave, you know. So, I, I mean, when I was in uh, Australia, I was always considered an outsider anyway because I was English. So I'm <laughs> oh, like... Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm a pom. <laughs> they call it poms, prisoner of Her Majesty. So they've that one's always stuck with me. I, I mean, I remember at school I used to get beat up all the time because I was a pom. You know, so so you get used to that. But uh, now people forget where I originated from. And so because we've done so well in America, everyone loves me now. You know, it's, oh, he's great, you know. And yeah, that's what I find that. interesting is oftentimes 
artists from Canada would go away and make a name for themselves outside of Canada. And when they come back, they're treated better. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it was the same for the black artists. They all went to Europe and were treated like gods. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were really well looked after, you know, like because people respected their music, you know. So they'd come back here and, uh, you know, wasn't so good. But Europe for them was fantastic. You know, they people just loved their music and, and it did so well for so many of them, which I'm glad about, you know, because they deserve it. But, uh yeah, I guess I guess Australia now looks at me a little differently, you know. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a strange one because a lot of my friends are still there, so I like to hook up with them when I can. So that that never changes, you right, know. No sure. And I'm not going to talk about America and stuff because I don't want to, you know, big note who I've played with and all that. I'd rather keep it on the low end, low spectrum. And just talk about other things like my terrible football team in Australia that never wins anything. And do you still follow them? Are they still your team? St Kilda, yep. Yeah, and they're still terrible. <laughs> well, at least they're consistent. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're consistently bad. <laughs> um, what was the pandemic like for you? That is what got me into a lot more songwriting in the studio. I have a studio here. And uh, that's what, you know, I wasn't going to sit around doing nothing. So I thought, I'm going to start writing some stuff. Um, and I, I went through this company called Taxi, which is a, a big A&R company. They send you what they want, all sorts of different kinds of music. And so I started getting into that. My first ones were shocking, you know, but it was a learning curve, you know, as as you know, you know, you keep learning all the time. So eventually I got to the point where they were accepting things from me so that that was really i was i was keeping busy like that um i'm not familiar with that company is it are you writing for possible sales to film and television or is it to sell to other musicians or how does that work yeah well what it is is they're an a and r company so say for instance marco wants something you know you go to them and you go um yeah i just want to have this here's some examples of what i like and then they'll put it on their uh, newsletter thing, and then you get it, and it says uh, this one, blah blah blah, two to four minutes, button endings, all this. I had to learn all these terminology that I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of a button ending, or you know, whatever that is. But yeah, that, I mean, that's how it works. And uh, you pay one hundred ninety nine for a year, and then each one, each time you put one in, it's five bucks, and then they give you. Um, they actually critique your work. So it's actually a great way to learn because they'll say what's wrong with it, what you missed in the when they put out what they want you to have. They, they give you a list of what they want. You know, they might say, uh, no strings, blah, blah, blah. We want this. It needs to be upbeat. Here's an example. Don't copy the example, of course. You know, but here's some, and I'll give you examples of music that is close to what they want. And then you come up with your own version and it's it's fun. It's interesting. I've had a couple go through, but the big one was uh, the children's show. That's the one that's I've already got that one. So, you know, that's going ahead. It'll probably take another year before it gets out there. You know, when people crit- critique your music, and I know that you you're doing this to learn a new trade or to expand your musical knowledge. But 
how do you take that when they say, oh, it's not good, or this is, you could work on this? Well, actually, they're, they're pretty good because they'll say, I love the melody, I love this, I love this. Uh, your strings sound too like a synthesizer, so then you go out and buy a better program that's got real strings, you know. Right. So they're, ne they're, never, um, they're never nasty. They're very positive with everything you do. Um, and as I've been working more and more, they, uh, I'm getting closer and closer to some of them, and they're telling me that. They're saying, man, so close. The volume might have been wrong. There's so many avenues. I've got to mix it as well. So, you know, I've got to do all the different things. And I, I don't like being an engineer, but, you know, so I can't afford to keep getting somebody out to engineer my stuff. So I, I learned it myself. But, yeah, I mean, I like the critique because that helps me move ahead. So I take it as a, 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 um, a lesson. You know, you're learning all the time. So, and I take it in, you know, whatever they tell me, I'll go, oh, okay, I'll, I'll um, work on that, you know. I'll make sure that I listen to the examples that you give me and make sure I'm close to that different tune, of course. But, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. It's, um, you've got to be, you've got to force yourself to go sit in your studio for three hours and try and come up with something. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's hours of work. I mean, and time flies when you're doing it. It's like, I'll be sitting down there at nine in the morning and all of a sudden it's three in the afternoon. I go, where did that go? You know, it's cause I'm getting so deep into the, into the music it's a pretty good feeling though right oh yeah i, I love it man. yeah lost in <laughs> lost in trying to find a good melody line <laughs> <laughs> um do you think it is influenced I, obviously it's making you a better songwriter or composer in this case but do you mm -hmm. think that has seeped into your own music and the disciplines oh, yeah, uh, well you know um I was always good at syncopated rhythms, which is pretty much because my band's only a five piece. I always wanted to make sure I filled the holes with syncopation instead of just everyone doing the same thing. So, you know, the harmonica might be in a different syncopation to the bass and guitar and that fills it, you know, it fills the holes. So I'd always been good at that kind of thing. But this, this, uh, I think I've just learned a lot about engineering is a big one for me, like doing the engineering. Uh, and because this music's so different from what I write, it's it's more of a relief to do something different for me as an artist, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I always had interest in every form of art. I mean, if you look at my collection of CDs, it's all over the place, everywhere from James Taylor to, I don't know, <laughs> Sex Pistols. Although I, I used to love um, Ian Drury. Ian Drury and the Blockheads, loved him. <laughs> I went to see him live. He was amazing. He had the best bass player in the world, I tell you. But they were a blues band that turned punk. Really? I know yeah, they were punk. Yeah. I didn't know they, were, they came from the blues. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Feelgood, that's the guy, the English blues guy. His guitarist was the guitarist for, um, for Ian Drury. Okay. He joined, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of that. A, um, a lot of blues players moved into that sort of area. It was quite popular at the time when he was around. He was probably the king of it for a long time. But, yeah, I mean, and then I've got, you know, Al Jarreau. I love him, you know. I loved his singing. Bill Withers. And then, of course, you know, I've, I've got Booker White, my, one of my favourites. 
great guitarist, great rhythm player. Uh, you know, so it, I'm interested in everything, really. You know, if it's good, it's good. If I was to ask you how you've kind of transformed over the years from the guy who started playing blues in Australia to who you are today, what can you tell me about that transformation and that journey? I think I'm more humble now because uh, I think when I was younger, I was always trying to, uh, trying to prove I'm good. And it probably annoyed a lot of people, you know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, oh look, I'd got this. Oh look, I won this. I, I was like that because I was trying to get acceptance uh, from people. And I guess I changed now. I don't. I'm not like that anymore. I'm quite happy in my own skin. What I'm doing now is is uh, keeping me happy, and I don't have to prove anything. It's 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 not necessary, and it was a waste of time but I think it's one of those things you do when you're young you know you're always trying to yeah I'm the man you know like but uh, I got over that (laughs) (laughs) okay so I wonder about the plight of the aboriginals in Australia is that something you're still very up to date on or now that you've been in North America for so long are you more aware of the the plight in North America well it's pretty much the same thing you know Oh, this land's nice. It's ours now, mm-hmm. you know. Because I liked Eddie Izzard always said it the best. He said the reason they didn't win is because they didn't have a flag. <laughs> hey, I've got a flag. <laughs> this land is mine. I've got a flag, and it's like it was so funny. But yeah, no, I still stay in touch, and I read about them, and you know, there's been a lot of good things happening for for the uh, Aboriginal people. My sister works in the Northern Territory where most of the mining is and Rio Tinto uh, destroyed some old artifacts from the Aboriginal people without even telling them, uh, which was disgusting, you know, and she, she quit. She said, that's it, I'm out. And, uh, you know, that was sad because there was some beautiful artwork that was had been around for hundreds of thousands of years and they just went in and dug up the ground because uh, Australia is huge on iron ore everywhere there right so you know they, they're still getting done over but the government's apologized and treating them well you know as they should mm-hmm. but there a lot of them are lost souls i mean they really you know the same as everywhere like drinking too much and that because things have been taken away from them and it's hard for us to understand what that's like you know like you know, I'm British. We ruled the world once. You know, it's disgusting what what the British did over the years. But uh, they a lot of them have gone back to their old ways and and decided to live the traditional way, which is something I'd like to go and experience for myself. Um, I've had the invite. I just got to get over there again once the um, airfares go down because they're ridiculous right now. I can imagine. Um, it's like two thousand dollars one way to Australia, and that's coach. Yeah, that's the long Ooh. coach ride. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what wine's for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there is a connection between you and and the Aboriginal people, um, or an experience that you had when you were young. Would, would that? Oh, yeah. Can you talk about that experience and also? 
I don't know if that led to the way you see the world and, and the way that you, you, you fight for their plight, but tell me about that, what impact that had on you. Oh, it's huge. I mean, uh, my father was a manager of a trucking company and they wanted him to go and set up camp in Port Hedland, which is in the very north of Western Australia. And in those days, um, they only had dirt roads to go up there, uh, which was fantastic. I mean, it was, you know, like a, a when you go to a service station or a petrol station, uh, it was basically a tin shed with, uh, you know, that's what, and they'd always feed you because they loved truckers because they brought all the food. It was different to here, of course, but I think I was happy that I experienced that, but I became very ill. I had um, a thing called Quincy's disease. My neck was bigger than my head and uh, I had to be operated on. So they took me to the hospital in Port Hedland and I was sharing a room with a young fella. Uh, never really knew his name. We just we were in the room together, you know, like two of us. He had a hole in his heart. So he had a hole in his heart and I was getting done for this neck thing. And we, we became friends. Um, and then one day he was feeling really ill. So I sat by beside him and held his hand and then he passed away from the hole in the heart. And that was a pretty hard thing to take when you're a young boy. And especially he was my friend, you know. Uh, so I, I sat with him. But I think uh, the fact that I lived up in the, that part of Australia where there were more Aboriginal people and white people was a big part of it too. I really liked them as a people. I like their I, – I, do you know you sort of get jealous of their depth? <laughs> That's You know, I, I just feel sometimes that we've lost a lot from so-called progression. Hmm. We've lost a lot of our spirituality which they maintain. And uh, so I got back into that, Marco. I started uh, getting into spirituality and uh, meditation and uh, it made a big difference to me. That was a big turning point. And then I guess, uh, you know, with the songwriting, the pictures come out. Although Some of them, I mean, the last album I did a song about your friend that comes to see you after 15 years and decides to move in. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not all deeply spiritual you know like i guess rise up is you know that's that's an obvious one and hell yeah was just i love that american saying hell yeah <laughs> so i thought i'm gonna write a song called hell yeah you know so uh i guess it's there i don't consciously think about it i think it's just embedded into me now that i'm gonna write that you know I find it hard to do anything else. And let's face it, America's got a lot of shit to write about. But what is it like living in, in the States? Do you still do you still feel like an Australian living in the States or do you now feel more American in a way? I'll never feel American, that's for sure. I mean, they, uh, they're not good listeners, they're good talkers. And I always like to listen. So I, I won't get that side of it. But, yeah, I've got beautiful land here. I've got like a 10-acre property uh, in the middle of uh, a very quiet area. So I love that. I, see, I lived in a city in Australia and it was just noisy and annoying. So I didn't like that. 
So when we moved over here, we wanted land so we can get our horses. I think my lifestyle is better here. Plus, you know, it's easy to get. I live in Michigan, so Canada's just stone's throw away. We're practically neighbors. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, we're actually higher up than uh, Windsor. Uh, yeah, you would be, Windsor. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I love it here. I, I've, I've always loved I'll say one thing. Canadians and Americans, they are warm, generous people. As long as you don't bring up politics, mm. you know, I've learned that one, you know, <laughs> don't even mention it. So, you know, I think Australia's a bit more, I think Canadians too are straight shooters. They just don't take bullshit, mm -hmm. you know. I think we've, we've had too much of it in the past. So <laughs> we're going, nah, not doing that. So, you know, I, 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 it's a different way of living. You know, I've got to get used to hunting and stuff, but Canada does it too. Do you have goals at this point for your career, for your personal life? Uh, just to uh, do more um, more songwriting for film and stuff. I, I really want to keep that going. You know, uh, we're going to get a couple of horses on our land soon, so that's another experience that, uh, you know, giant dogs. And then... Uh, <laughs> I think I think you know I want to spend uh, a lot more time uh, being happy. You know, uh, it's been such a horrible time with the pandemic, so you know it's it's time to just smile a lot. I I um quit smoking. I quit drinking. Can you believe that? From an Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to do with the pandemic or not? Not really. I think I just wanted to stay healthy. Well, yeah, I guess the pandemic for the smoking would have been the thing, you know, but uh, the drinking was just, I was gaining too much weight. You know, I was starting to get big. I was starting to look like John Popper. <laughs> so I wanted to lose the weight. And it's amazing how quickly it comes off as soon as you stop drinking beer. You know, it comes off fast. It's like, whoa. So, you know, that, that was really, I guess the health aspect is, the most important thing for me at the moment, you know, as you get older, you know, there's more things to think about. That's for sure. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. So my final question to you, tell me about how you would look back and summarize your musical career and the path you've taken. Whoa. Uh, it's been exciting. It's been really exciting because it's taken many different roads. I think the acceptance by the American public was great. The acceptance of the Canadians was wonderful. And now the acceptance of my own folks back in Australia, which is uh, something that took a bit of work. But uh, I, I think uh, it's been a great career, that's for sure. I can't even remember half of it. It's been so busy. Uh, um, I think I've only touched on a little bit of what I used to do when I was back in Australia. You know, it just take too long. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it's been successful. I've got a, a beautiful wife. I've got a beautiful home. I can't complain. No, I mean, everybody can if they want to, but that's a waste of time. For sure. So better off better off smiling and keeping happy, don't you reckon? I agree. Peter, it was a real pleasure meeting you. I really appreciate you taking this time to do this. Oh, no worries, mate. No worries at all. I enjoyed it. Thank you very You're much. You're a lovely man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.